let me just share this. In a basic biblical worldview, making disciples. What's a disciple? A follower of Jesus Christ. That's Dan's job. That's my job. That's the job of the Sunday school teachers. We are not called to get people to pray the sinner's prayer. Uh, We're not called to get people to join Fairview Baptist Church. We have been called to make disciples. Now, that begins with getting born again. That begins with coming face-to-face with the evidence of the resurrected Christ. And then it's up to you as to what you do with that evidence. You can either say, I don't want it, or you can fall on your knees and cry out, my Lord and my God. But that is just the new birth. That is the new beginning. You are to be discipled or taught to observe all things, the Lord Jesus said, whatever I have commanded you. By the way, how many of the 66 books in the Bible is Jesus responsible for authoring? All 66 of them. So we have not ripped out the first 39. That's not just filler. As a matter of fact, as Dan was talking about a while ago when he's dealing with the book of Revelation, unless you understand and know the Old Testament, a lot of things in the New Testament appear to be just so happenings or have no foundation to why they're there. So it's imperative that we are taught the entirety of the book. Today, in these four realms of government, we're going to be focusing more on the subject of civil government. We'll read Romans chapter 13, a familiar passage of Scripture. Let every soul, let every individual be subject or submit to the proper authority. By the way, that word power there is the Greek word which means delegated influence or jurisdiction. I would say that the first two verses here are speaking to the general divisions of government that God has established. Self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. Whosoever therefore resisteth God's design resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive judgment, punishment, or the consequences of bad decisions. Verse 3, we actually focus, and we know this by the subject matter, focusing on the civil authorities, the word ruler there, the magistrate, the prince, the ruler. For rulers are not supposed to terrorize good works. They're supposed to be a terror to evil. Will thou then be afraid of the power? Well, if you do that which is good, you will have praise of the same. For he, the ruler, is the minister. And notice what this says. Our civic leaders, our civil leaders, elected officials. As a matter of fact, the term election to begin with had a very biblical basis behind selecting that term for the annual selection of a governor of a, of a commonwealth. He is the minister of God to thee for good, not to do evil. But if thou do that which is evil, then you're to be afraid, for he beareth not the sword. Again, that's the judgment in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. question we are going to answer today is this. Of all the forms of government that exist around the world today or existed in world history, did God have an ideal form of civil government? Well, we live in a day when man is aggressively trying to redefine the definition of of a family. We see that sex outside of marriage is now something that is not only accepted, but celebrated among the average uh, governmental system, uh, in our media, in our advertising, in our movies, and the like. We see that divorce has also been accepted as the norm. And in 2015, the Supreme Court redefined marriage as to include any consenting adult of any gender. Let me say, ladies and gentlemen, that God has tolerated a lot. But when asked about what God's intent 
for marriage was or what God's design for marriage was, what God's ideal for marriage was, Jesus went back to the beginning. He said in Matthew chapter 19, I'll pick up about in verse 4. He said, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning, that's important, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall be cleave or joined unto his wife, and they twain shall become one flesh, wherefore they are no more twain, but one. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. As I said a moment ago, God's patience is put up with a lot, but don't confuse what God is tolerating with what His ideal or His intent is. Well, how do we know what God's will is? Well, not only does He say it repeatedly throughout the Scripture, but we look at what He first created. Notice what Jesus said there. Notice what He made them, how He made them at the beginning. This is called, in biblical exegesis, the law of first mention. When God had a clean slate, exactly what did He create and come up with? Well, we know in Eden, God created the man, put him to sleep, took a part of him away, created his complement, his completer, although everything that God had done was perfect and well done. God made the observation, it's not good that a man should be all by himself. I will make a completer, a complement, a help meet for the man. And we know exactly what God's will was. Because we can look and see exactly what God did. God made Eve and gave Eve to Adam. Now, we know that God established the realm of civil government. We saw in past weeks, and we saw in our Scripture text this morning, that it was God that established it. And we saw why God established it. To punish evil, to protect the good, that we may live peaceably in all godliness. But is there one form that's more in line with God's design or intent? For government. Well, God established the principle of civil government in Genesis 9 6. But when given the opportunity to actually create a nation, what was the original form of government God established? Well, when we think of Israel, it's likely that our original conception is wrong. We think of kings and a monarchy. And it's true that God was to be the king of the nation of Israel in its original form, it was not a monarchy. The nation of Israel was, in fact, a commonwealth of 12 sovereign, self-governing tribes with legal boundaries. Therefore, we could, in fact, call them states. And they had a common worldview operating under a unifying constitution that we call the Torah, the law of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a tendency of thinking very spiritually when we reference the law of God. But the Torah is not just a spiritual document. As a matter of fact, the law that God gave to Israel consisted of three sections. First, it does start with God's heart, what's called the law. Thou shalt not kill or commit murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit uh, adultery. All of these truths are biblical truths reflecting the nature and mind of God, and they transcend all time and dispensation. But there's also a section identified, both in Leviticus and Exodus, that's called the statutory law or the statutes. 
In this particular area, God describes the ceremonial system of sacrifice which He gave to the nation of Israel. The Levitical priesthood, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, the thanksgiving offerings. Of course, we know as we study the Scripture, and especially as Paul ties things up neatly in the book of Hebrews, we know that none of those were in fact efficacious towards sin, but done by faith in obedience looking forward to the Lamb of God who was coming, whose sacrifice would take away the sin of the world. They were effective as an area of obedience for the nation of Israel. And by the way, it was this area of the law that was done away with or completed or fulfilled when Jesus came the first time. You remember in reading in the Gospels, as Jesus bowed His head and dismissed His spirit, there was an observation made that the veil within the temple separating the first section from the second section was in fact torn in two from top to bottom. We had Christian leaders around the country uh, talk about uh, disconnecting from the Old Testament and we're not needing, needing the first 39 books anymore. Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I've not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And in fact, everything prophetically pointing to the Messiah and His first coming, what was it, 456 specific prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus in His first coming. We know that there are more than double those prophecies pertaining to His second coming. He will, in fact, fulfill those. Another way in which He fulfilled the law was providing clarity as over the years the Pharisees had made modifications through oral tradition that actually corrupted what God had said. And that's why as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you see, you see Jesus clearly making the contrast. God said this, or, or you all say this, your elders, your traditions of men say this, but I say this. So He clarified that. And then finally, the whole pointing of the statutory system, the ceremonial system of Jewish worship in the temple, pointing to the Lamb of God, was in fact fulfilled. And that was done away with. And that is when the veil was rent in half from top to bottom, no longer needing an earthly high priest of the tribe of Levi and the, uh, from the family of Aaron to go in and intercede for man once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, as Paul says, because of the blood of Jesus, we can with boldness and confidence, all of us as priests of the Most High God, enter into His throne room of mercy and grace. Then the third section is judgments. This was the civil law for the well-being and safety of the people. Now, within the area of judgments was the comprehensive nature of doing business. There were policies that dealt with basic banking and business, fair weights and measures, fair trade, debt, bankruptcy. A person was limited as to the amount of debt he could assume. You had the ability to mortgage your own labor for up to six years. Uh, you could mortgage your land, but you couldn't sell your land. That stayed in the family. You could, in fact, provide a land lease for up to 50 years. But in the year of release, the sabbatical year, it would always return to the family. They were taught as a people to be 
productive. In fact, they were commanded to work six days. They were to save and budget, and they were prepared to lend. If you were caught stealing, you didn't go to jail. You paid it back with a penalty. If you stole something, you, you generally paid it back fourfold and worked off that value. There were rules for sanitary safety. For example, one of the 613 mitzvahs is that they were to build their latrine outside the camp and dig a hole and then bury it. Well, you know what? When you're leading 2 million people across the wilderness for 40 years, that's a pretty good idea. Now, is that terribly spiritual? Does that get you to heaven? No, but it may help you live longer on the earth and in better health. Why? Because God was concerned about the health and well-being, hence the worldly government of His people. The idea of the proper washing of dishes. The difference between washing dishes that were of brass and breaking dishes that were of pottery dealt primarily with cleanliness. A brass dish you could scour with water and reuse. But if you got blood in the pores of something that was porous, you couldn't adequately clean it. And for their own safety, they were commanded to break it. The idea of putting people who who are sick into quarantine comes from the pages of Scripture in the law. And that's the way we have always done it up until this year. Only this year did we come up with the brilliance, hey, let's quarantine people that aren't sick. We always call that being put in prison, the deprivation of liberty. Well, why was God concerned with all this? Because God was concerned about the health and well-being of His people. This was the constitution for Israel. Rules so that they wouldn't be overworked. They were required to rest on certain days, both the employer and the employee alike. They were required to take care of the poor on their, from their own wallets freely giving to family members and others that had need. Rules that pertain to mortality or morality and the family. Rules that pertain to military service. Uh, rules that pertain to courts of law. No man was found guilty without a fair trial and guilt can only be established at the mouths of two or three witnesses. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, Israel was not ruled by a king or a giant central government. During major crises, God might raise up a judge or a ruler to lead the people through that crisis. And it was from the consent of the people. For example, God raised up Moses to lead them out of tyranny in Egypt. God raised up Joshua to lead them into the promised land and then to, in fact, divide uh, the promised land. And, and God used Gideon and God used Samson and God used Deborah and other times to lead them up out of oppression. Some like, somewhat like when the Continental Congress called on a man by the name of George Washington to lead the Continental Army in the defense of our liberties. They were a commonwealth of 12 tribes or states governed by one rule of law. There was no need for major taxes. There was no standing central government. There was no standing army. They had a militia of every able-bodied man from across the 12 tribes that would respond to the blowing of the shofar. And they demonstrated their trust in God by doing it God's way, by following His instruction and trusting His design rather than putting their confidence in one powerful king or a central government. They were according to God's command, to choose out from among themselves capable men who feared God, loved truth, and hated covetousness. And those were to judge righteously in all matters pertaining to the law. There was an assembly of elders that represented all the 12 tribes in national assemblies, according to Numbers 10, verses 2 through 4, and local elders that judged in the gates of the city, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. 
God said to select out captains of tens and fifties and hundreds of thousands to cover and rest judgment according to the law. And there was to be no favoritism to the rich or to the poor. Bribery in court was forbidden. And the goal was righteousness for God's people. But unfortunately in 1 Samuel, as Samuel was near death, the Philistines were an imminent threat to their security. And rather than trusting God and obeying His instruction and following the law, there was no stability and safety and order because every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. Originally, they had no king. God gave them a constitution, the Torah, and they were to be self-governing. But only a righteous people are capable of freedom. And we know that Israel eroded morally over time. And rather than trusting God by obeying His directions and enjoying His blessings, they did it their way. They made a wreck of their lives. And then they concluded, we need a king. We need a strong central government that can take care of us and take care of our needs and protect us from our enemies and tell us what to do. God, through Samuel, told them this was not for the best. He told them it was not a good idea, but they didn't trust God's wisdom. They wanted to be be protected and ruled by an earthly monarch just like every other nation. But that was God's first choice for civil government, a confederation or a union of states under a common constitution. Now, with this biblical background, it's important that what we remember what America once was And how we were designed to operate. And understand, ladies and gentlemen, if we don't know what we're supposed to be, then we don't know and won't know when we deviate from the course that we're supposed to be on. One of America's worst presidents was a man by the name of Woodrow Wilson. He was a fierce progressive, and he led in many changes to our Constitution, which wound up being detrimental and leading to where we are now, amongst was uh, making senators selected by public vote rather than by the state legislature uh, enacting the Federal Reserve and creating the whole platform where they can just borrow money and create money endlessly. But Woodrow Wilson made this statement back when he was simply a university president in 1887, and it was published in Political Science Quarterly, and it dealt with his ideas on how they could progressively transform the United States of America. And let me just give you layman's terms of what is on the screen. He said this, what the first generation will resist, but then eventually accept. The second generation will accept it because their parents did. And then every succeeding generation will do it because they'll assume that it's always been done that way. Today, we believe that 330 million people are ruled by an all-powerful president signing one executive order after the other, or we wait with bated breath for a ruling. By the way, notice what they call it, a ruling from the Supreme Court, when actually it's supposed to be an opinion given by the Supreme Court. Well, looking back, you all know our history. Let me brief you, give you the background and how it applies to us today. July 2nd, 1776, we know that representatives of all 13 colonies gathered and voted to approve the Lee Resolution officially divorcing Great Britain or officially seceding from British tyranny. After two more days of haggling over the final wording, the Declaration of Independence was signed and 13 British colonies 
with the stroke of a pen, became 13 sovereign nations. Their divorce was publicized through this official document of divorce called the Declaration of Independence. Dan has taught on this in the past, but just briefly understand what this document did. It is our mission statement, which states to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which natural law entitles us. It is our statement of faith. We are endowed not by the king, but by our creator with certain rights, unalienable rights, rights that cannot be taken away because it is God that gives them. We have the stated purpose of government. To secure these unalienable rights, governments are instituted among men, and they derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And then they resolve to always have the right to correct perverse government. Whenever you get sinful man involved, even in a good system, we have the ability to corrupt it and mess it up. And then they pledged everything they had to make it stick. The former British colonies were now sovereign states, and each state had its own constitution. By the way, they were all verily, heavily Christian in their conduct. For example, in the Delaware Constitution, Article 22 states this, Every person who should be chosen a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust before taking his seat or entering upon the execution of this office shall make and subscribe the following declaration. I, state your name, do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ His only Son and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. You had to make that public declaration before you were allowed to serve in public office. This was according to the Delaware Constitution, July 4th, 1776. You can join many churches easier today than you could to serve in government. And what was the point? Man understood under natural law that there is absolute truth. There is right and wrong. There are only two genders. And God is the ultimate lawgiver, lawmaker. So man could not do anything that contradicts God's law. And also, when you recognize what the Scripture says, that one day we will all, as Dan talked about in the last hour, we will all give an account. You'll either give an account at the great white throne judgment if you're lost, or give an account at the judgment seat of Christ if you're saved and be rewarded for your faithfulness to what has been entrusted to you. However, recognizing that as a politician, as a trusted political leader, when no one is watching, God is always watching. And that will make sure and govern and control your actions. Well, after declaring their independence, the tyrant king of England didn't just let them go. The 13 states constituted a formal union. Our first constitution was called the Articles of Confederation. And it is here that they are first identified as the United States. Now, the reason for their League of Friendship was to secure their common defense and their liberties and mutual and general welfare. The Articles of Confederation also clearly stated that each state retained its sovereignty, freedom, and independence. In other words, they didn't become one conglomerate as if putting 13 states in a blender and mixing them all up. You had 13 states consensually agreeing to work together for their common defense and for their general welfare. In fact, after we won the war for our independence, the Treaty of Paris 
that was signed, it was made between Great Britain and each of the free and sovereign and independent states, naming them individually as well as collectively as the United States. Now, from this point in 1783, you fast forward four years to 1787, and this time you didn't have all 13 colonies, but representatives of 12 of the 13 had gathered in Philadelphia for the stated purpose of strengthening the Articles of Confederation. Now, there were some real problems that the Union was facing. This was not without controversy, but the meeting itself was not without controversy. Alexander Hamilton had first wanted to do this in 1786, called a meeting in Annapolis, but not enough states attended. Philadelphia, 1787, they called another meeting. Again, this was not without controversy. Understand that Rhode Island never showed up. And according to due business under the Articles of Confederation, you needed a unanimous vote of all 13 participants. So you've got a problem there with the business they did when one of the 13 didn't even show up at all. The great orator Patrick Henry, who famously made the statement in 1775 calling the people to resist the tyranny of Great Britain. He said, give me liberty or give me death. Well, Patrick Henry refused to attend the Constitutional Convention because he was suspicious of their motives and efforts to concentrate too much power into the general government. As a matter of fact, Henry famously exclaimed, I smell a rat when asked about the Constitution. Nevertheless, the stated reason was in order to perfect what they already had. In order to form a more perfect union, they came up with what we have today. Now understand exactly what the federal government legally can do. You've always, probably always been taught, I know I was, that we had three co-equal branches of government. We really don't. Article 1 outlines the most important branch, which was the only branch that had the authority to make law. And that ability was defined and limited in Article 1, Section 8, to only 17 very specific areas where the federal government can act to begin with. Let me tell you, most of what they do now, they don't have the legal right to do. But again... What one generation resists but accepts, the next generation accepts because their parents did, and everybody after that just assumes, well, that's just the way it's done. We are operating under that assumption that's just the way it's done. The legislature, this Congress, was divided into two parts. You had the House of Representatives, which was per capita. It represented people. So in a state like California that has a lot of people, they have far more representatives than a state like Wyoming. However, when it came to state representation, by the way, the senators were not elected by a popular vote. They were appointed by a state legislature because the Senate was to represent the states. The House of Representatives represented the people. By the way, that is why all spending bills are supposed to originate in the House of Representatives because there is no such thing as public funds. The government does not have any money. The state government doesn't have any money. The only money that the government has is what they take from you in taxes or what they borrow and we are obligated to repay. But Article 2, in fact, defines what the executive branch was to be, both the president and vice president. They were charged with the responsibility of carrying out the will of the people as decided by Congress. Now think about this for a moment, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know where we are at today and why this, important, this message is so important and so relevant today. The first five presidents of the United States were considered founding era presidents because they were all alive during the war for our independence. 
So you had President Washington, President Adams, President Jefferson, President Madison, President Monroe. John Adams, of course, served one term. Everybody else served two. So you have a total of 36 years covered by those five presidents. You know that in the entire governance of those five presidents, they issued a total of 15 executive orders over 36 years. Because they knew it wasn't the job of the president to sit there and rule and reign as if he was a monarch. The current occupier of the White House issued 40 executive orders in a week. So you can see how we are quickly getting away from what the intent was to be. The Supreme Court was defined in Article 3, very limited jurisdiction. Article 3, Section 2, as a matter of fact, says this. Here's the only authority the court has. <clears throat> According to the Constitution, they can adjudicate cases affecting ambassadors, <coughs> public ministers, consuls, anything that takes place on the ocean, and controversies between the United States, which the United States are a party to, or controversies between two or more states, or from citizens between different states. Anywhere in there about legalizing abortion and mandating it on all 50 states? Anything in there about taking the Bible out of public education? Anything in there about redefining what marriage is? Is there anything in there that says that they had an original jurisdiction when Texas sued Georgia over the legality of the election? Absolutely. And they shirked that responsibility. Now, we're taught... Oh, by the way, you had the Bill of Rights, which was, in case we forgot anything, let me remind everybody, federal government, you can't mess with our religion, you can't mess with our speech, you can't mess with our politics and our right to assemble, uh, you can't mess with our right to own and bear arms, uh, you, can't, you, can't me- you can't just break into our homes and, and, and search things, you've got to have a search warrant, and, and then you get down to number 9 and number 10, in case we specifically gave you permission to do anything, you can't do it. Shouldn't be any misunderstanding with any of this. But now we are taught that all power resides in Washington. We're taught that we have an imperial president or a Supreme Court that issues declarations or rulings over 330 million individuals who live in 50 different federal districts. That is not true. What we are is a are 50 sovereign states who by their right of assembly created a union and established a limited general government to handle their general welfare and their common defense. So when you attack one of us, you attack all of us, and we come together for our common defense. Our general welfare are such things as a postal system and post roads. That's pretty convenient for all 50 states. Our general welfare includes such things as having a common currency, when Cindy and I travel out of state, we don't have to stop at the Red River and exchange Oklahoma dollars for Texas dollars. We have a common currency that we can use that is part of the general welfare and common defense. Now, please understand as we go in passing, and Dan has taught on this, there's a difference between the Declaration. The Declaration uh, transcends time. They are self-evident truths. All men are created equal. We have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The purpose of government is to secure those unalienable rights. That is our birth certificate. That is our mission statement. The Constitution is nothing more than the operator's manual. Here is how you are to govern within this small area of responsibility that has been delegated to you. Now, there was a fear among those that met in Philadelphia. 
and a fear amongst the states before they ratified. They were afraid of creating a government that could get out of control. They had just fought for liberty from tyranny. And they wanted to make sure they didn't create another tyrant. Well, James Madison addressed this very specifically and made promises to the people that they had nothing to worry about. He said this, the powers delegated, notice that delegation, the higher authority were the states delegating certain authority to the federal government by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and we've written them all down. Those which are remain to the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former, being the federal government, will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to the individual states will extend to all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concerns the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state, not states plural, each state individual. The operations of the federal government will be most extensive and important in times of war and danger, those of the state governments in times of peace and security. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, these letters were published in New York papers. They're called the Federalist Papers. And they weren't written to lawyers to understand. They were written so the ordinary, everyday, common farmer of New York would understand what the Constitution was, what its limits were, and they could vote whether to approve it or not. Now, according to what we have just covered, let me remind you again, does the Supreme Court have any authority to mandate removing the Bible from public education? But they did, didn't they? You know what should have happened in 1963? The state of Oklahoma, the state of Texas, the state of Georgia, the state of Kansas should have said, uh, uh, sorry, uh, your honors, we appreciate your, uh, your opinion. However, that is unconstitutional. We're not doing that in our state. Children belong to the parents. And if the parents want the Bible in their education, then they're going to have the Bible in their education. But we didn't do that, did we? Remember, what one generation resists but accepts, the next generation does because their parents did, and every other generation just assumes that's the way it's supposed to operate. 1973, half of the states outlawed abortion. There were a few liberal states that had it legal. 1973, the Supreme Court, and again by what we just read, both in the Constitution and also in Federalist 45, they have no authority to legalize the murder of children in all 50 states. But they did. You know what should have happened in 1973? The Christians in the state of Oklahoma should have risen up and say, we are not going to allow there to be a law on the books legalizing the murder of our pre-born children. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? No is a pretty strong word. And when you actually are right on the issue, it really packs a wallop. If your neighbor's coming over and stealing apples out of your yard from your apple tree, and you let him do it, he'll keep getting away from it, keep, keep getting away with it. If you go out and say, no, he's probably going to stop. Now, if he's taking apples out of his own tree, he can do whatever he wants to because that's his business. But you will continue to do what you get away with until somebody says, no, that is wrong. We're not going to do it. 2015 is one of the reasons we were working on the Protect Life and Marriage effort here. They had no authority to redefine same-sex marriage. Nevertheless, they did. And now, in 2021, we have one-party rule in D.C., and there's already legislation to attack Christianity, 
to drive Christianity as we know it underground, make it toxic and politically incorrect, and the religion of hateful and tolerant people. In fact, they have new policies that are already implementing, which identify us as potential domestic violent extremists. If you happen to have questions about the 2020 election, you are a potential domestic violent extremist, and we're going to have to keep extra eye on you. If you have questions about how we have responded to the COVID-19 shutdowns, you too are a potential domestic violent extremist, and we're going to have to keep an eye on you. Now, we're told that the Supreme Court is the entity responsible for protecting the people from the overreach of the federal government. Let me ask you, how's that worked for us? By the way, remember, in 1856, it was the same Supreme Court that said Dred Scott was not actually a man. He was just property and had no rights. They were wrong. And many states rejected that opinion. 1973, they declared abortion legal. They were wrong. 2015, they redefined marriage. They were wrong. By the way, where were they when they had jurisdiction and should have gotten involved when Texas was suing Georgia? So let me ask you, is that a very reliable defense of liberty? Well, maybe we just need to get more conservative justices. Oh, wait a second, we've done that. We had three appointed by President Trump. We're supposed to have six conservatives. How has that worked out for us? Well, let's see an important reason is why. The deceitful heart of man. Let me show you an example. Justice Kennedy. 2013, Justice Kennedy overturned the Defense of Marriage Act, claiming that marriage was not the jurisdiction of the federal government, but the issue of marriage belonged to the states. First of all, it belongs to God. However, from his constitutional opinion, he was actually correct in 2013. But the same man came back two years later in 2015 in the Obergefell decision and said this. According to the 14th Amendment, that requires a state to license marriage between two people of the same sex. So in 2013, he said it's not the federal government's responsibility. It belongs to the states. And then did away with that legislation, the Defense of Marriage Act. So it was burned and destroyed, no longer had to be dealt with. Then two years later came back and said, no, 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 I'm sorry. It is the federal government's responsibility, and that doesn't belong to the states. How can you get justice from an unjust justice? And we cross our fingers and hope and beg and plead and pray that the next time they won't be harsh or incorrect. We pray that next time they'll rule properly. Let me explain with this short video the dilemma that we face. This Tony Perkins from Family Research. These are our guys. This is our team. Tony Perkins, Family Research Council. Todd Starnes, a commentator, journalist. He used to work for Fox News. Alan Sears, who was the former president of the Alliance, Alliance Defense Fund, Alliance Defending Freedom, and others. These, this is our team. These are our guys. This is a bunch of Christian conservatives at this meeting. Paul Blair. As far as what can we do, 2004, the state of Oklahoma amended legally our state constitution to define marriage as one man and one woman. We did everything right constitutionally, and we had one federal appointed judge throw it out. Now, when we're dealing with a judiciary that has 
turned the Constitution upside down. For example, the First Amendment, which is supposed to defend our religious liberty, is what they used to uh, take away our religious liberty. When after 138 years of no such thing as incorporation doctrine, all of a sudden in 1925 they create it and start applying it to states and, and municipalities where we can't put up a Christmas tree at Christmas. And when they're using the 14th Amendment, which at the time that it was ratified, homosexuality was illegal in every state, but they're using the 14th Amendment to force homosexual marriage on every state. How do we win, not when we're facing judicial activism, but when we're facing judicial insanity? where it's very clearly black, yet they're saying it's white. How do we win there? Todd Storms. <laughs> I'd like to get a quote from the ADF, uh, Alan Sears. <laughs> uh, actually, the, the simple answer, actually, it's your business, Paul, as pastor. It's, first thing we need to do is pray. Cut it off right there. Basically, they don't have an answer. In fact, you can tell that we, our side, doesn't even understand the problem. Therefore, that is the leading, and they're good guys, really good people, great people. They're, they are us, but they don't understand the problem, and we don't have an answer. Who is supposed to stop the federal government from overreach? Well, according to James Madison in his report to the Virginia legislature in 1801, he said this, The Constitution of the United States was formed by the sanction of the states given by each in its sovereign capacity, the states. It adds to the stability and dignity as well as to the authority of the Constitution that it rests on this legitimate and solid foundation, the states being then the parties to the constitutional compact. And in their sovereign capacity, it follows of necessity that there can be no supreme court, no tribunal above their authority to decide in the last resort whether the Constitution that was made by the states has been violated. And consequently, that as the parties to the Constitution, the states must themselves decide in the last resort such questions as may be of sufficient magnitude to require their interposition. In other words, ultimately, it's up to the states to say yes or no for what goes on inside their state borders. Why? Because dangerous powers, which were not delegated to the federal government, may not only be usurped and executed by the other departments, including you know, legislative, uh, executive, but the judiciary also may exercise or sanction dangerous powers beyond what was given to them in the Constitution. And consequently, that the ultimate right of the parties to the Constitution to judge whether the Constitution has been dangerously violated must extend to the violations by one delegated authority as well as by another, by the judiciary as well as by the executive and the legislative. In other words, every branch is capable of getting out of line. And ultimately, it is up to each state to make sure that the Constitution or proper law and order is carried on in each respective state. As a matter of fact, James Madison said in what was called the Virginia Resolution of 1798, he said, in case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of other powers not granted by the Constitution, the states who are parties thereto have the right and are, in fact, duty-bound to interpose. In other words, to stop, to come between. When the guy's walking across his yard, walking into your yard to steal your apple, it's up to you to stand on your property line and say, nope, 
You can't come into my yard and steal my apples. To interpose for arresting the progress of the evil and for maintaining within their respective limits, each state has its own borders, the authorities, rights, and liberties appertaining to them. Thomas Jefferson, the man who penned our declaration, said this in the Kentucky Resolution of 1798, that the several, by the, ever, by the way, understand, our founding fathers and our framers were great men, but they were fallen men. They were not perfect. Not everything they did was perfect. They did some really good things. They also did some bad things. The idea of, of a government is always a danger when it's, when, when it's in your hands, but when it's in my hands, you can trust me. You've got nothing to worry about. You know that when John Adams was president, think about this. John Adams, this great patriot, this leader of the, of the war for independence, this man that we admire, the second president, when he was in office, the Federalist Party actually passed a law that made it against the law if you said anything bad about the president. Can you imagine? This is the same group of people that was railing against King George just 20 years earlier. But they called it the Alien and Sedition Act. If you say anything bad about the president, it's an act of sedition. Well, the states said that's unconstitutional. We're not enforcing that. That's the background of the Virginia Resolution, the Kentucky Resolution. Here's what Jefferson said. The individual states composing the United States of America are not united on the principle of unlimited submission to the general government, but that by a compact under the style and title, a constitution for the United States, and by the amendments thereto, they, the states, constituted a general government for special purposes, delegated to that government certain defined powers, reserving each state to itself, the residuary mass of right to their own self-government, and that whensoever the general government assumes undelegated powers, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. In other words, if somebody makes an illegal declaration that they don't have the authority to make, it's not a law at all, and it can be ignored. Let me ask you this. Are you, I am the pastor of this congregation along with Pastor Dan. Is that correct? The Bible says you're supposed to follow our leadership within the congregation. Now, if I issued a declaration and signed it that everybody was to put up a poster of me in their house, <laughs> in my glory, in my football days, most of you would say, no, nope, we're not going to do that. And you would be right. Actually, it would probably add a lot to your house. But you would be right because I don't have the authority. I may have the authority to say, according to the Word of God, here's how you get saved. I might have the authority to say, hey, according to the Word of God, this is how we know that Jesus is Lord. Hey, according to the Word of God, you know, we, we can't, you know, brother so-and-so, we need to have a talk, understand you're having some issues at home, and you, let, let's have a talk. Hey, there are certain things I do have authority over, but I cannot make you put orange shag carpeting in your living room and a poster of me on the wall because I don't have that authority. So understand, the federal government does have proper authority in many areas. But most of what they're doing anymore, they don't have the authority to do. And in that case, Madison Jefferson said, if it's an illegal declaration, if it's an illegal law, then it's not a law at all. You can't disobey a law that's not really a law. Does that make sense? See that red thing in the middle? 
What is that? What do you see around the outside of that red? A border. You know why it's got a border? Because it's a state. That is called the state capital. It's in Oklahoma City. You know why we have one of those? Because we're a state. This guy is the current elected governor in the state of Oklahoma. You know why we have one of him? Because we're a state. This is what's called the legislature. There's a lot of mischief that goes on in there. Dan Fisher was there for four years and can explain it to you. That is our House. That is our Senate. You know why we have a state legislature? (laughs) You guys are getting it. This is called the Constitution of the state of Oklahoma. You know why we have a state constitution? Because we're a state. And this is a picture of our Supreme Court in the state of Oklahoma. You know why we have a state judiciary? Because we are, in fact, a state. And in 1777, when the states came together, it was finally ratified. It said this, We the people of the United States of America. One day, there will be a concentration of power under King Jesus who will reign over the planet earth literally and we will rule and reign with him. Isaiah, most of the prophets, the book of Revelation, all talks about this period of time that we call the millennial reign of Christ where there will be no war. Weapons of war will be beaten into plowshares. The lion will lay down with the lamb. It will be perfect, just government under King Jesus. That is the only time a concentration of power works because Jesus is perfect. But until then, in this dispensation, this dispensation of sinful men, Jeremiah reminds us that man's heart is incurably wicked. In our dispensation, we know that the concentration of power in one place never works out well. Look at human history, beginning with Nimrod's attempt at global government, the Pharaohs, the Caesars, Nebuchadnezzar, down throughout the world, Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler. It never works out well when you concentrate power in one place because man is sinful and cannot be trusted with too much power over his fellow man. By the way, that would include both President Trump and President Biden. The concentration of power is never a good thing. Remember God's original design when He had a blank slate. What did He do with Israel? They were a commonwealth of God-fearing. Here's what they were supposed to be. We know how they got tracked when we studied the Bible. Look at history. They were a commonwealth of God-fearing, moral, self-governing people with strong families in their sovereign tribes slash states, not governed by a king, but they were unified and governed by the consent of the people in accordance to the law of Israel, the Torah, the Constitution. 
And we all know the basis of studying biblical worldview, the reason we try to study the Bible for application in every area of life today, whether that be our families or how I behave as a, as a husband, how a lady behaves as a wife, how, how you train up your children, how children respond to their parents' leadership, how we operate in business, our business ethics, everything else. When we approach something from a biblical worldview, the closer you get to doing it God's way, the better it works out. And it only like, it happens like that every time. America has never been perfect. And we never will be. But we have been exceptional when compared to the rest of the world. I and mean, when you look at us compared to world history. And by the way, remember, we talk about this often. We're the only Christians in 2,000 years of Christian history that haven't had to live under persecution for our faith. And my hope is that we are able to retain that for our lives and for the lives of our children and for our grandchildren until the rapture comes and we're caught up to be with the Lord in heaven. One day I know what's going to happen over those last seven years. They will successfully come together in global tyranny. There will be a coalition of ten mega wealthy men that are behind the scenes pulling the strings. And they are going to put forward a super politician that's suave talk and appeals to everybody. And we know over the course of those seven years what is going to happen. But until then, the Bible doesn't tell me about the Declaration of Independence. The Bible doesn't tell me about the First Great Awakening. The Bible doesn't tell me about the Second Great Awakening. The Bible doesn't have World War II in it. We are now living out our faith as an extension of the book of Acts. As God-fearing Christ followers are trying to engage the culture, present the truth of Jesus Christ, and be salt and light to stop the world from just dying in darkness and decay. And I don't know as I read the Bible, I know the rapture's coming, but I don't know whether we're going to be free when the trumpet sounds, or whether we're going to be in a gulag somewhere when the trumpet sounds. And that outcome is going to depend upon the church now, how awake we are, and how willing we are to resist the efforts of tyranny that are attempting to be imposed on us. And that is a strong word. And understand, ladies and gentlemen, we are not facing hard tyranny yet. Hard tyranny is when they arrest you, put you in jail for what you say or what you believe, and then send you off to Siberia to a work camp to never be heard from again. That is hard tyranny. We're not there yet. But that is exactly what happened in Cuba. That's exactly what happened in North Korea. That's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union for some 80 years. And there is persecution in China right now. We aren't allowed to talk about it. Because right now, China runs America. But there are Christians that are being persecuted to death in China now. There are Muslims, and I am not Islamic. The Muslims are wrong about Jesus. However, there are Muslims being persecuted for their faith in China now. That is hard tyranny. When they arrest you and re try to re-educate you and, 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 and imprison you so that you will quit speaking and they will punish you for bad behavior. But we are under soft tyranny and there is a partnership by the liberal elites that are running all the major corporations. And you'd say, oh, well, shouldn't, the free market, shouldn't they be free market capitalists? No. Well, they shouldn't be, but they aren't. If you're Amazon 
Isn't it a good thing if you put all competition out of business? If you're Walmart, isn't it a good thing if we raise the minimum wage to $20 an hour? At the same time, we're, ta- we're starving middle America by doing away with the energy industry. But at $20 an hour, we'll put away every mom and pop shop because they can't afford to hire anybody at $20 an hour. Hey, that big corporations love what's going on. And they're working hand in hand with the liberal elites. They will suppress the truth. Good luck trying to get something out on Facebook or, uh, or uh, Twitter. It won't be there too many. They had this new video with, uh, uh, who's the pillow guy? Mike Lindell. Haven't watched it all yet. But he came out and did a very thorough expose. I had pastors from California and pastors from New Mexico and pastors from Texas. In fact, many of you, I was getting texts all day long. Oh, you've got to watch this video. By the time I could click on it, it was already taken down. It was a nonstop battle trying to suppress the truth. You know what happens when lie meets truth? Truth wins. We welcome the debate. We want dialogue. Truth wins. They want to suppress the truth. And lie and lie and lie and lie till all our kids have heard is the lie. And they believe that that has become the truth. Misinformation. Rewritten history. If you ever read Orwell's 1984. Talks about they had a ministry of truth. In fact, that was the main guy in the book. His name was Winston. His, his, his responsibility was to rewrite history. Destroy the actual true record and rewrite a new record of history. Well, now that's happening in real time. They're actually changing it as it happens. By tomorrow, today's history will be changed based upon what you can find on the Internet. Silence, shut you down, deplatform you. You may lose your job or lose a promotion, or lose a pay raise, and by golly, they will do everything they can to bully you and intimidate you into silence. That is soft tyranny. That is where we are at right now. I am closing with this last statement. Ladies and gentlemen, we must hang on to the truth. You make sure parents never turn loose of the truth. Make sure your children... Know what the truth is. And for all of us, understand we are engaged in, and there is a war going on against us. Not bullets. Right now, it is a spiritual war in every arena, trying to take America down from being a great country to integrating into the globalism of the Great Reset. And they are trying to use psychological warfare on us to wear you down. And you know what? It works. Every one of us are tired. We're physically tired. We're emotionally tired. I don't watch Fox News. I don't watch any news anymore. I don't know who to believe. So consequently, I just don't believe any of them. I am so sick of the talking heads, and anybody that is a conservative and tries to espouse truth is fired. You just saw Lou Dobbs, one of the few guys that I really still had great respect for, fired yesterday. Why? Got to suppress the truth. Got to silence that voice. Folks, I don't care. The Bible says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Every day we have on this earth, you just get up, and you recognize that Christianity is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. You put your armor on daily. You roll your sleeves up. You ball up your fists. You say, okay, devil. You may be more of a match than me, but not more of a match with me with God. 
And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And you engage the truth every day. I don't care how tired you are. You never turn loose of the truth. You never give up. You never get in, give in. I've got great news, ladies and gentlemen. One day my Bible says that every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have been smart enough to do it now. We have cried out to Jesus as Savior and surrendered to Him as Lord now. Because of that, we have been born again into the family of God. And because of that, as soon as this heart stops beating, whether by rupture or by rapture, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And these people out here right now, the George Soroses of the world, they're out here shaking their fists at God. Psalm 2 tells us, saying, we will not have you to rule over us. You know what Psalm 2 says God's doing? He's rolling on the ground in laughter. It is God's long-suffering patience that is allowing what's going on to go on right now. Not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering. Why? Because He's not willing that any should perish. Even George Soros, He wants to get saved. One of these days, the invitation is going to be rescinded, and it's going to be too late. In one of these days, every individual will stand before the Lord. As I said a while ago, two judgments. Great white throne judgment is where the dead in their sins will be judged according to their works. And the Scripture says, oh, this isn't very popular preaching. No, but it's biblical. And every one of them will be cast alive into the lake of fire, and they will suffer throughout all eternity. You really believe that literally, Pastor? I have no reason not to believe that literally. Every one of us who are born again, our sins have been paid for. For us, we have the rapture. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb, seven years. We have the return with Christ at Armageddon. We have a thousand years of millennial reign on this earth as we rule and reign with Him. I hope I get Norman, Oklahoma. I'm going to reign every day on Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> it's going to be paybacks for this Bedlam series. Then at the end, the Bible says that the devil's going to be released for a short period of time. So those that were born during the millennial reign will have the freedom to choose to follow the Lord or to follow Satan. Amazingly, there will be many that follow Satan. That rebellion won't last long. It'll be put down quickly. The Bible says then that the devil will be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already are. Then the great white throne judgment, those that have rejected Christ and said, we will not have you to rule over us. At that point, they will confess that Jesus is the Lord. But then it'll be too late. The last thing they say before they're cast into the lake of fire. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new eternity. And praise God for all of us, new glorified bodies with abdominal muscles. <laughs> and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, we win. Amen. Problem is that right now there's a lot of casualty counts still going on.
But it's imperative that we never abandon the field. We never give up the fight. Hold on to truth. Don't ever give it up. The most important truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. I'm the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's where the whole thing begins, ladies and gentlemen. I don't care whether you're a church member. I don't care whether you've been a Boy Scout. I don't care that you're an American. I don't care. Now, I appreciate all these things. I don't care if you've served in the military. None of that makes you a Christian. I don't care if you're a member of our church. Well, I do. We like having you, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You are either born again or lost based upon falling on your knees and crying out to Jesus and His finished work. His death, burial, and resurrection, surrendering to Him for salvation and surrendering to Him for Lord, His Lordship. That is being born again. And that's all that matters. At the end of the day, does God care about our well-being? Obviously. God care about Israel living on planet earth? Obviously. Gave Him a lot of instruction for good things where they would enjoy life and be blessed. How to avoid sickness. and other. Hey, God does care. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're already on the winning side. We're already on the winning side. Are you? Has there been a point in time in your life where you have trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord?